Welcome to the App and Admin Podcast, episode 75, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. And I'm Jerry. Now, in this show, we'll read your feedback. We answer your questions. And we talk about what we've been up to, so let's get on with the show. I'm back again on this episode. Um, so last episode I was away, couldn't make it because I was actually away. I'm actually working away at the moment uh, for one of our customers, which is quite an interesting project, um, learning lots of things on it. Um, done a lot of coding on this project uh, using Visual Code and PowerShell. Um, I, I thought it was really fine, Tyler, if you've got a project to learn or something to do, you can you can learn coding a lot better than just trying to make... Um, random programs kind of thing so if you've got yeah, like definitely. a so um i uh, i am managing to um get power i've been writing like free for design powershell uh module uh code because i needed to pull information back uh from what i needed and then import it somewhere else and pulling it from two different sources and it's all quite interesting um trying to like work out how powershell compares stuff we've got two variables arrays i'm using arrays now piping from one th- one command to another yeah and it's just amazing how much you can do because the guy he was i was working with on this project he was all doing it manually running manual powershell scripts and then putting it into a spreadsheet so i basically just um managed to uh, uh automate it all so that it made a spreadsheet on its own with no mistakes kind of thing so um also doing it so that it actually runs one of the things i was looking at is looking at the permissions uh and with windows you get a thing called ntfs permissions um but the problem you have is that uh we wanted to look at what groups are being used and like they had like like hundreds and or thousands of folders and um i needed to go down to each folder to see if the permissions were inherited from above so i wrote, wrote a little script which basically went into each of the um folders uh, by getting get child item which basically um picks up it looks at what directories in there and then it goes inside each directory so and i was basically writing that to a sql database um so that i could actually pull the information back so that i could then run query on my um database table so that i could see what the unique group names were so uh, and interesting i've been trying to find all these pcs out um because the ideas were going from one domain to another i was using i couldn't connect some pcs so i wanted to make sure what was they using rpc was open or they just like dead pcs so i was using um nmap to scan the pcs i was just about to ask if that was what you were going to be using yeah so i use nmap to kind of poke at it and i found out there's actually printer it was a printer was that nmap for windows yep oh right you can get a gui version called ZenMap, isn't it yeah or you can that that was comes with like a gui front end but you can also run it from the command line as well which i was doing because you don't need to install anything if you do it from the command line it does it's just an executable and um so i did all that fun the next day i had a guy come over to me and said um is your name Alistair? And I go, yeah. And goes, well, I'm coming from the security team. Uh, we've got reports that you're P- that you're running net, uh, you're running stuff from your PC. Can you explain what you're doing? Kind of thing. So um, yeah, they obviously monitoring what what applications of people are running on uh, that on their on their desktop. So um, oh yeah, explain what I'm doing. He was happy with it, but I actually then kind of got talking to him in the tea room later on. And I gave him the um, Dark Deck Diaries um, kind of um, 
uh, podcast listen to. So uh, yeah, we kind of got a thing going between us. I was saying like every time I see them, I'm not running anything bad today. I'm not I'm not running metaploids or anything. It's all right. You, you, so so as I recall, the the um, Darknet Diaries episode you're talking about was uh, was the result of a, a post to uh, Reddit um, where there was a guy that was talking about how he got caught on a red team test. Uh, and essentially it came down to the fact that he was running, that somebody from accounts was running PowerShell on their machine that they never do. And, but the, the blue team were kind of keeping an eye on things to spot when stuff like, but yeah, so spot on. I have to dig out the, uh, the, the show, that specific show. When I showed it to him was the one where um, it was the guy who was in the marketing team. He was a packer and they, they employed him to go into the um, marketing team to see if he could get into the network. And he's getting really frustrated about it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So lots of coding with that. And then the other thing I've been doing is that um, is about um, uh, Markdown and Nextcloud. So I've set my own Nextcloud instance up. Um, using Snap, which is really handy, um, and it auto—I think it's the Snap's auto update. Because when I looked at it, it looks like I got the latest version um, at the moment of Nextcloud, or the current up-to-date uh, version. So I'm guessing Snap's auto update, don't they? Or so I seem to recall hearing uh, either Alan or Martin from the Ubuntu podcast saying that they update at something like two o'clock in the morning or something like that. So there is a, there is a, a time that they do update, but yes, they automatically update. That's cool. Uh, so I basically did a, a snap install on a, a digital ocean drop it and it works fine. Got it work with next cloud, uh, with, uh, let's encrypt. Cause what's happening was, uh, work basically blocked, um, uh, Google drive and Dropbox. And, I was just having a problem where I was not keeping any documentation. I was keeping some in Google Drive, some in Dropbox, some on my Linux box, some on my Windows document. And I had no kind of um, way of um, keeping them in sync or, and I was doing different things for different different staff. So I'm using Markdown now and all my documentation um, using Microsoft Visio Code, um, which runs on Windows and on Linux, mm-hmm. I think it runs on Mac as well. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's a Markdown thing, so you can split the screen in half, and you can write one side, um, and then on the other side, it will then produce a nice as you're going along. So it works really well. And now, and you can put the um, you can put snippets of code in it, so it looks nice and neat. So I can just anything I do anything now. Well, before I was writing it into a text document. Now I've got it into a nice. Markdown language, and we'd, and I now think those folders between all my three devices, my laptop, my home PC, my other, my home laptop, and yeah, and and Nextcloud syncs it up perfectly. The other thing about Markdown is you because uh, it's um, basically ASCII. There's no, um, there's not binary files, and uh, like a lot of document formats are. You can put it in your Git repository if you're using one, or your version control. So. Um, but yeah, v, uh, I can see how VS Code would, would be handy um, having the, the split screen thing. And also with the Markdown as well, in the Nextcloud, there's a, there's, a, there's a Nextcloud plugin you can put in and you can view your Nextcloud. I can go into my through the web browser and you can go and edit them and you can see them as they were in Markdown as as a published kind of thing. Mm. Um and I've put an example in the show notes of one I've actually worked on a Markdown document because I was dealing with something the other day um, where I was trying to compare CentOS to Ubuntu because I was getting really confused about why, which one should I focus on. 
And um, I wrote a document um, and some people in our Telegram group help us, helped me update it and make sure it's okay. Um, it's all basically what I think different tiles between CentOS and Ubuntu. So I've got somewhere to go um, to if I need to work out. I couldn't find an actual document like that on the web I wanted. But now I really understand that they are quite the same. It's just that some of the commands are different and the way they're different different things are implemented i often find myself trying to do apt install on a centos box (laughs) (laughs) just doesn't work so so there's a couple of things to kind of pull out of what you just said then um so like you uh i've used nextcloud um predominantly for synchronizing things like ssh keys that i didn't want to turn up into uh something like dropbox or google drive what I found was because I've started using Termux on my tablet is that um, I wasn't really finding uh, an acceptable uh, web dev client for Termux. Uh, but what I did find was a program called Sync Thing. Uh, and Sync Thing is a bit, is effectively a decentralized um, peer to peer file synchronization tool i've used something mm. no, in fact I, I i had it set up on a few machines and i think it needs updating on on them and mm. kind of resyncing and stuff the main thing that i found was useful with it was that you don't need to synchronize everything to all the machines so um like i share so in i i pay for dropbox pro uh for all the photos and stuff that i take so i've got like They've just upgraded the Dropbox Pro from one gig to two, sorry, from one terabyte to two terabytes. And if I was to try and synchronize that to my laptop, uh, it would kill my laptop. But likewise, if I tried to synchronize it to my desktop, it would kill my desktop because I don't have two terabytes worth of storage space. So what I tend to do now is is just selectively sync the, the directories that I want to pull down. Well, that works great for photos where they're all in kind of a consistent structured directory structure. Um, but for like all the other chaff that I've ended up with over the years, it's kind of all over the place. And so what I've started to do with sync thing is um, just my SSH keys and my um, key pass file. Um, I just synchronize those specifically to the machines that need those things. And so if I stop needing that machine to have it, I take that machine out of replication from all the other machines. So likewise, if if I lose track of that machine, I just go around all the machines I've got sync thing on and take it out of that machine. Take that machine, that folder out of sharing to that machine. It's quite a neat little solution, I thought. But so that was one thing. The other thing that you mentioned, Al, was that um, you're using um, markdown files for your documentation. And I just had a quick peek through that um, CentOS versus Ubuntu document that you said and that's uh, that's a really good document actually i'm quite impressed with that um you said that you uh, and jerry mentioned that you can uh, store them in git um have you been sharing this documentation with your colleagues or is it just you on site at the moment doing this stuff my documentation i said why i did my mark it does for me basically it's just my personal um resource where i go to store stuff basically all my scripts i write myself and stuff oh that's good so do you think you're going to be sort of do, doing this deployment for quite a while or are you nearly at the end or? Uh, no, not until the end of um, July. I'm working on it until the end of July. Yes. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's good. Um, I'm really enjoying it. It's really interesting. 
So I can't really say much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds interesting. Sounds intriguing. Yeah. You're going to have to try and trip you up. <laughs> yeah. That's what Al's been up to. Jerry, what have you been up to recently? Well, it's weird. It's weird. Uh, we're talking about this uh, a few minutes ago. Um, listeners might be aware that I'm doing freelance work outside my sort of nine to five work. Uh, I have been for sort of four or five years and it's got it's now got to the stage where uh, there's more work that so I can't do my I can't continue to do a job from nine to five uh, do a couple of hours on the train each way and still get still keep all all the clients happy so um, I'm sort of experimenting with uh, you know getting other people to do bits of work uh, and projects finished more on time than, than I have been because clients have been quite understanding so far but you know it, it'll be good to be a bit more to, to go in that direction a bit more I think so uh, I've kind of been doing a bit of that sort of business management type stuff which is is interesting and uh, feels extremely new and weird to be honest. So how are you finding people to to work with or for you? Well I'm quite lucky I mean there's a friend of mine who I've known for uh, since university so you know 25 years god that's a long time is that just <laughs> yeah he's uh happens to be free at the moment and he's he's, he's got a, a, the skill set that, that this project needs this particular project needs which is aws stuff so so yeah he's helping me helping me out with that and the, and the nice thing about it is he's a you know he basically taught me about infrastructure as code and that, uh, that side of things. So once the code is there and written and working, I can learn from what he's done mm. uh, and hopefully replicate it or modify and replicate it in other, in other projects and things. I think that'd be quite good. It's quite a good way of learning, to be honest. And yeah, that's uh, so that's kind of that's that side of things. Uh, it's, it's kind of unexpected, so it's, it's all a bit new. Fab. Uh, other than that, I've been playing with Selenium. Um, so I got into Selenium because the the Wi-Fi on the train demands that you uh, you have to. No, it brings up a certain page. You have to click on a checkbox, and then do something else. I think um, click on something else, and then it lets you lets your IP out to the internet, basically. Um, so I was getting tired of doing this um manually each time uh, and as i'm a sysadmin i like to automate things so uh, i found a firefox plugin which uh, runs uh, you can record you, you can basically give it a starting page and you can record your actions in the browser like clicking a button or putting a, a, a value in a, a text field and things like that and then you can save it as a, what's called a, a side file, S-I-D-E, Selenium IDE. It's basically a JSON file, I think, which describes your browser journey. I think the user journey, or, or I think I think it's called in the trade. And then you can play that back in the browser. So doing this in the browser was a bit, it was also a bit fiddly. It's like you click on the plugin icon you open the project and then you, you run your test uh, and then it's done. I was trying to get this. So, so yeah, I thought there must be a, a less gooey, gooey way of doing it. And there is, there's, um, there's a Node.js app called Selenium Sidrunner. So just recently I got that working and uh, not particularly interesting. It's just about getting NPM to do 
what you what you want it to and then um so i haven't actually tried it because i've I, I finished it off last night after i got off the train but next time i go on the train i should be able to run a command and get on the wi-fi without any user interaction nice <laughs> uh, achievement unlocked <laughs> but yeah I, I i can see um how how that this could be relevant beyond you know just not having to click through the the train wi-fi thing <laughs> uh automated browser testing and stuff so what's what's the um the script language kind of what, what does it look like or is it is it not like a, a a traditional sort of documentation script to be honest i haven't looked at it much but i can just bring it up as we're talking it's it's json um yeah it writes out you you, you do the you record the thing in the browser uh and then it, it write, writes out as json um, so you've got ID, version, name, U- URL, which is the starting URL, and then tests, uh, and then like a list of commands. So checkbox, you know, input checkbox, uh, basically arrays of JSON stuff. You, when you run it, you, you run it through the browser. So when you when you invoke it from the command line, it, in, it's got a notion of dri- uh, web drivers. So you've got drivers for Chrome, uh, Firefox, also edge as well when i was looking last night um and then it comes up and chrome has a thing saying your browser is being controlled by a remote app or something like that firefox is quite nice it comes up with a little robot in the url bar and it's quite funny um, or you can do it headless you say so you don't open the browser at all so this is obviously that this would obviously be useful for uh, test driven development as we were talking about uh, last last episode i think uh you could put that into your um, deployment pipeline maybe um deploy something test it using selenium and then uh, if it passes put it live nice sounds really good yeah yeah it sounds interesting so i'd like to i'd like to look at that a bit more i was thinking as well because i started my my first sort of it job was uh, as a software tester as well um so you know it's kind of comes full circle almost is there another way as well as is there something you can do to check what page has been updated kind of thing um because i just could quickly into i don't know if you can use this for this what you just talked about joe um i managed to get my uh email server hacked um there was a vulnerability it didn't hack it they managed to there's a problem with i don't know something cross script something or other you know the site script yeah and someone managed to get in and um basically changed the config but i noticed this quite a way so i basically just applied the patch and fixed the patch what the the people brought out is there and how do people keep up to date because obviously like i couldn't up you don't update obviously this software by doing a app get update or whatever hmm. is there a way you could kind of point um like a i don't know something what checks daily the copy like there's obviously like simbra or whatever produces a website what says oh this is my cut these are the current builds or whatever can you do it so that like a document like something checks something and then it um if it changes it emails you kind of thing so you can kind of keep up to date with this kind of thing yeah i mean i think it would depend on how you installed it in the first place if it was if it was a package yeah like a lot of times it's like a package from a repository so you'd you'd be able to uh you could do you could use curl or something to do that you uh, to check that the, the version number put it in a 
text file or a database or whatever and then it runs again and it, the numbers change and so therefore it needs it knows knows it needs to up, update um there's also on debian there's unattended updates which will do this it's sort of a randomized time that will check for updates every day what i was mainly asking is that say like simbra or um um Netscloud, obviously you've got a page which tells you what the latest updates are what the thing so i'm wondering if you could is there like an application like a curl application or something which case you could check that website and if it changes email you kind of thing a bit like if this that whatever it's called you'd script it obviously mm. i think so i know that steve gibson uh from security now always used to go on about a firefox plugin that would ping a page uh, and then sort of flash at you if it had changed. But yeah, much like Jerry, I think probably what I would typically do is start with something like a curl script, just to download the page, save the previous page, and then do a diff between what was yesterday and today. Okay. Yeah, that's a simpler way. Now, it. you might find that things like um, if you've got any JavaScript things that are loaded or anything like that, it might be worth kind of passing for those and sort of cropping them out, but you'll only tell that by sort of watching between yeah. sort of day one and day two. Nextcloud might have a public API where they report the version and then you can just pull the API and see if it's changed. I don't think the API is the, I don't think the, the, the Nextcloud is the one that's the problem. It was Zimbra, Zimbra wasn't it? You said was the yeah. issue. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, there yeah. was a vulnerability where it's like, affected all their things and i didn't know about it until i it got inside my base i couldn't get into my web mail kind of thing and it was just a case of um taking my site down installing the latest update and removing a couple of files and it was all back up and running again but i mean i heard about other stories where people have kind of got all their mail taken and stuff so um, yeah it was just interesting um just trying to think obviously uh you uh, but how would you find out about those unless you keep your eye on kind of but with everyone like me and you, have got busy lives. You can't always kind of keep up to date with everything kind of thing. Mm. And did you say um, as well that someone had a, you about this the automatic update, uh, like on Ubuntu, there's something you can set up so that it automatically installs security updates. Did someone say they yeah. had an Ansible script, Ansible script to do that? So I've got that in about four lines, to be honest with you. It's a really cool. straightforward yeah. one. Okay. There's a package called Unattended Upgrades for Debian and Ubuntu, uh, and and CentOS is Yumcron, which I don't think is is featured featureful, as they say, but um, does the job. Cool. The Ansible script that you're talking about um, is is effectively because I can describe it to you because it's that straightforward. It's something like um, it's a single playbook. It goes hosts all or hosts whichever uh, tasks um, apt. And then in the apt task, you do uh, update, yes, uh, upgrade, full, auto-remove, yes, auto-clean, yes. That's 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 five lines, well, seven lines if you include the host block. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. Ansible uh, stuff as cron jobs, that's quite interesting. Because the other good thing about that is you'll see if you've got any failures. What that doesn't do is that doesn't do a reboot. Uh, so one of the nice things about automatic updates, sorry, unattended up upgrades on Ubuntu, is that you can tell it that if if it's if there's a, a reboot required, you can schedule it to do a reboot at a particular time of day as well. Mm-hmm. You can also get unattended up. So again, if you're using uh, 
Ubuntu or Debian-based systems, you can have unattended upgrades do things like um, blacklist certain packages. So it won't update, for example, your Linux kernel, if that's a thing that is a problem for you. Um, but you can also say that you can have it apply updates only on a reboot. Yeah. So that's in the same way that like Windows users have got it. You can have it so that it will only apply an update when you do, when you force a reboot. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Um, unattended upgrades is a really good, really good package. And if you listen to the, um, the Ubuntu security podcast, it's kind of their closing tagline is, is turn on automatic updates. Yeah. 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 I need to get that sorted. I did that. A few, I think I did that a couple of years ago on uh, my, on all the boxes, all, all my uh, Debian ish boxes. Uh, just went around. It's really, really quick and easy. It's like, five minutes of each machine or, or as you say, write an Ansible role, uh, Ansible role to do it. So this week I have, or this, this last couple of weeks, I've been working on some uh, Fortinet um, firewalls with work. Uh, and I've been helping out one of our accounts with uh, doing the policies on there in, a, in an Ansible playbook. Because what they want to do is try and track the... Um, the so in large enterprises, uh, a firewall change typically involves the architect raising some paperwork saying, I want to let host A talk to host B uh, on port C. Uh, and that then going in front of a change board and the change board going, oh, yes, 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 we agree with that. That's a good idea. When are we going to make the change? Well, we can't make a change inside working hours. Ooh, that's a very good point. Well, how about we make the word change in, you know, on the third Tuesday when the sun's in the, in, in the hypotenuse of, you know, there's a whole ritual gets started off the back of it. The third Sunday after Pentecost. Yeah. And um, this particular account is desperate to start moving, moving towards being a lot more agile and being able to make changes, you know, during line of business and being able to identify what's going on in that in those changes. We use Fortinet 48 files on this particular account and the the playbook uh, is I think I've probably been working on the playbook itself for probably a good 4 weeks. Not solidly, but you know, you 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 hit a bug and then you have to rewrite it and and you have to bear in mind that a lot of the people that are going to be working on, you know, Whereas I said before, you know, that the architect is, I want this file to talk from host A to host B and stuff like that. What we want to do is stop them from raising an Excel spreadsheet, you know, writing out an Excel spreadsheet. I want this host to talk to this host on this port, submitting that to a firewall engineer and a firewall engineer sitting there and trans, you know, dutifully transcribing that into their firewall product. And, you know, everyone's human. If I can interject, you can turn an Excel spreadsheet into a CSV file then, and then you can do useful things with the CSV file. Except for the fact that Ansible CSV does not, if the, if the CSV sheet is anything even remotely complicated, if, sorry, if the XLS is even remotely complicated, the CSV goes horribly wrong and Ansible uh. CSV can't handle it. And actually... Getting people to understand how to write YAML files is is quite easy to do, and and if we're using YAML files, then you can track that using GitHub or GitLab or whatever, um, and so that then moves that that's, that that change management cycle moves away from you know let's all review this Excel spreadsheet to let's review the diff between the last thing and the current thing, so you still have your change management process. 
But when they hit implement, it gets pushed to the files. Well, it, assuming all the rest of the pieces line up, which, you know, I'm not involved in that, but in theory, the CICD pipeline at the point where they merge the pull request or merge request, whichever platform it is they're using, should actually just push that straight onto all the files. So I actually got I got the sign off from uh, from my boss to because all the modules we're working with are open source. So I got the sign off from my boss yesterday, yesterday, day before, to actually open source that lot. So uh, between now and when this podcast goes out, I'm hoping that playbook should be uh, that role rather should be available for people to uh, to take a look at. Not to say that it's endorsed by my employer as something that they should be running on their environment, but as a <laughs> as a template for looking at and uh, and potentially using. It's quite good. Use at your own risk. Absolutely. Use at your own risk. Um, the other thing that I've just started doing, and it's very, very early days, is I'm just starting to look at working with Terraform. So there's a bit of a, a fight going on between sort of various uh, various camps at work about which which configuration and infrastructure tooling is best. Uh, and you've got the, the, uh, the IaaS people saying Ansible, Ansible, Ansible because that's the product that they're using. And and to be fair, understand where they're coming from. Uh, and then you've got the PaaS people going, why would you use Ansible? Terraform, 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 Terraform. And uh, being the, the hardcore geek that I am, I want to understand both products and I want to understand where one wins out over the other. So hopefully in the next few days, uh, I should start having some blog posts up about, you know, my first steps with Ansible, uh, with uh, Terraform rather. Uh, so my first step with Terraform and, you know, this is what I did. This is how I did it. It's mostly going to be around IaaS stuff because that's still predominantly the work that I'm, the stuff that I'm working in. That's uh, infrastructure as a service. So that's, you know, you, you own everything from the operating system up rather than PaaS, which is, you know, you own everything from the application upwards or function. Uh, you own the code that runs on top of the managed platform. Anyway, yeah, so there's, um, it's the IaaS stuff that I'm mostly working with. Yeah, I think the thing, I mean, Ansible has these uh, modules which talk to cloud providers, but I think, I probably said it before on podcasts, and I think Terraform is there to give you an overall view of your infrastructure. So, you know, uh, for instance, on an AWS deployment, you might have a load balancer, uh, you know, a web server, database server, and all the gubbins, the associated stuff around it. Mm-hmm. That's what and that's what Terraform's really good at is uh, it, it almost it helps you to understand the relationships between those those things. Yeah. So one of the things that I did see kind of as a as a byproduct of this this conversation at work was that there is actually a uh, there's a talk from one of the HashiCon uh, conventions. Uh, which has got a guy from the Ansible project and a guy from HashiCorp representing Terraform on stage talking about, you know, how you can work together. And actually from the looks of things, at least recent versions of Ansible can actually trigger Terraform jobs. And some, although I don't think there are any Terraform provisioners for Ansible. No, there's there's um, there's a thing that I've, used uh, but i haven't never used it in production where you can so with terraform you've got this notion of outputs so you you build your infrastructure and you've got an output and you can output various it's, uh, facts about what you've just built so you, you can then 
either take that as just JSON output and use it as Ansible variables, or you can, there's an Ansible, uh, I think it's an Ansible provider where you can sort of chain that to Ansible somehow. I forget how I used it now, but it was, it, it was about getting facts from the Terraform stuff into Ansible and then running Ansible based on that. So for instance, you might have a, the, the IP of your database server. You can add that in as a variable to Ansible uh, to for database passwords and things like that, database accounts, uh, as an example. Going back to um, a couple of things you said earlier about DevOps and stuff, I've just finished listening to the Phoenix Project um, on my commute because where I'm working at the moment I've got like a five hour drive each way and so I'm obviously quite on top of my podcast and yeah and I really I'd really recommend listening to the Phoenix Project if you haven't already listened to it no I've heard about it and I keep meaning to and it sounds like I probably should (laughs) it's really good I think you've read it haven't you John or listened to it yeah I've read it I've read it yeah it's really good so anyone got any recommendations for audiobooks for me um yeah, let me know because I'm, I'm getting to the bottom of my list of podcasts to listen to. I'm still, I've got so many podcasts to listen to and, and I've been listening to quite a few new ones as well. So I get kind of get too much input as well if I listen to too many podcasts. So uh, you need to zone out. I have actually started listening to music as well now as well as, well as podcasts, which I never used to do. Uh, firstly it was all music and then it was all podcasts now it's a kind of mixture of the two which means less time for podcasts and no time for for audio books unfortunately i've started um picking up podcasts that are not about technology so they're just you know either talking heads talking about stuff um or they're talking about it might be technical things but not it technical and one of the podcasts i've been listening to is um called the hashtag calls a scene podcast which is about it's uh, it's run by a, an american uh woman who's a business consultant uh, and she's basically talking to people asking them how they're trying to effect change in their environment so that's quite a good podcast um uh it's it is a little bit american centric uh, so there's a lot of talking about because she's a she's originally a I think it's a an African woman by descent, so she's approaching things from a certain viewpoint. Which obviously I don't I don't get all of it because obviously I'm a as you may or be, may or may not be able to tell from you know my voice I'm a you know a white a white man from the UK, so I'm it's not my viewpoint doesn't match with hers, um, and a lot of the experiences she's had have been quite different naturally from mine so but having been sort of an organizer of a a conference in the past i'm i'm i was quite conscious of the time that um i needed to start understanding more sort of viewpoints on sort of how the world outside my my bubble is and and i think this podcast is really good it's not necessarily the whole picture but it's a very good starting point in the picture, and it's if you're if you're at all interested in diversity in any way, shape, or form, it's a really good podcast to listen to. I've always listened to podcasts outside of tech, and yeah, like you're saying, a lot of them are American, and it's I don't know if I'm it's just me getting older or if sort of a, a sort of international things are changing. But the more the 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 more time goes on, the more I 
you, you, you just think America's a bit weird. <laughs> cue, cue the really bad feedback from our audience. Fantastic. Well, I, I don't know how many American listeners we've got. I don't think you're weird. I just think you're <laughs> different, <laughs> you know, with like everyone, like, because you're thousands of miles away from geographically from me. And then you're by definition, you're going to be, have different experiences and things like that. So, but that said, my, a lot of the podcasts, when I started listening to podcasts, were American. So a, a, a lot of them are still. But it's good. So they said they say that you should, you should always seek out different points of view. Anyway, it's like you, sh- you should read the Daily Mail from time to time. Um, so that will get us a load of, another load of emails. But, um. I, I agree. If if any of you um, want to write in and recommend books that we should be reading, or um, you know, audio books that Al should be listening to, or Jerry should be listening to on their journeys in, um, we. Uh, so one of the things I discovered, so obviously we, we flew last show without, without Al and I discovered partway through the, uh, the recording process that I'd been, uh, providing the wrong email address all the way through. So although, so Al very generously sort of at the last minute had to step up and, and, and amend the email address. So, so our email address could be either, uh, show at admin admin uk or what's the other one now? Al, the one, the real one. Mail at. Mail at. So mail, M-A-I-L at admin admin podcast. Not M-A-L-E. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know. I've got to another one. <laughs> but yeah, so 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 those two and potentially now those three email addresses will all uh, <laughs> will all arrive with us. But yeah, so if you've got any recommendations, please please do send them in. Yeah, the, we were to talk about, I mean, the main thing we're going to talk about tonight is about um, Al in our Telegram group was asking a question, wasn't it, about uh, high availability of a VM or something, wasn't it? And then we thought, we were going backwards and forwards on the Telegram, we thought it might be easier just to um, kind of talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, so I think this comes out of, uh, obviously, a couple of shows back, we uh, we said we wanted to start doing Q&A, uh, and uh, we invited people to contact us. In the last show, we had we had some a Q and A, and this we've added this to the to the Q and A list. So Al writes: In the scenario, we have a CentOS seven guest VM on a single ESXi host with uh, no vCenter or HA, and it's located at a customer site. Customer connects to a friendly URL via a web browser, which is mapped via an A record to a static IP. Solution works well, but has several points of failure as this CentOS seven server runs obviously on a non-HA ESXi host, as well as the fact that the customer has a single internet feed. If we wanted to make this highly available either on-site or via AWS and Azure, how would you go about doing this whilst also keeping it secure? The main components are an Apache web server running PHP with a MySQL backend. How would you go about breaking these up into either individual VMs, i.e. multiple web servers and separate PHP and database servers? I would imagine that you would then also require a front-end load balancer or reverse proxy. Is this something you might look at using Docker for, and how would this impact your database state and backups to ensure no data is lost? So, Jerry, I know you thought you you had a, a comment on that. So something I've been coming across recently is um, maybe where I've been working for the last year or so, you can't or you shouldn't, in a lot of cases, take what you've got, uh, like an on, if you've got an on-premise, um, for in this case, ESXi solution, you don't necessarily want to take that and put it straight into the cloud. So if you've got a, a single, uh, in this case, you've got a web server, PHP and a database running on the same VM, 
by the looks of it. You may want to look at using it. It depends how like, on on a few variables, like how much money do you want to spend on it, and how how much do you want to invest in the developing the solution uh, as opposed to just getting it up and running. A few things jump out here. So the database you can you with a bit of effort you can get database as a service on something like AWS and I assume Azure as well. So you so the way I would do it is write some Terraform code to define a database um in on AWS it's called RDS. You can make it MySQL, MariaDB compatible. You can give it certain parameters and so on. For high availability, the way you do that is a called an auto scaling group in AWS. Um, this that's the only provider I've had experience with, but I'm sure you could do it um, with others. Uh, in fact, the client of mine's looking at do, kind of doing it manually using DigitalOcean because DigitalOcean is doesn't have any of that stuff because this is a lot simpler so what you do you, you an auto scaling group is basically designed to start up new servers uh, based on load so you can look at cpu memory usage and things like that uh, what you can do though is have an auto scaling group of one um so or or two um you could have two and then um use spot instances or something that's another another story um and then in front of that you have a load balancer so again a load balancer in aws is just a set of parameters uh, behind the scenes it's an ec2 instance it's a vm like anything else but it only gives you certain parameters so using again using some infrastructure as code stuff you can tie the instance and the load balancer and the rds together to give you effectively a cloudy highly available thing uh, so that's how i do it you might want to split out the the php um server as well again if you've got the, the the money to do that to pay for that extra server or again the time to invest in uh containerizing it and putting it into the container service so that yeah that's that's how i do it i uh, any questions so I think it's all down to cost um, of what the customer expects, especially with smaller customers, which I'm guessing is not it's more of what Al's dealing with, is, that, is what can they tolerate for their service to be down? Does it have, because the main question is A, is A, does that, does that server need to be on site? So I'm guessing those probably, we'll probably find that that's probably, that's a server on site somewhere. Um is there a is there a reason why is that on site? Is it because it's like a manufacturing plant and it's got to be there? And it's got connecting to an old AS four hundred server or something? Well, it says it either on site or via AWS Azure. Yeah, so you've got to work out how what do you want to defend against? Of what parts you got? You've got one bit if you've got the actual application and your database. Then you've got to think about if it's on site. You've got to have multiple internet connections because what happens if one goes down? If you've got then got to think about um, where your where's the firewalls? Um, if you're going to have multiple firewalls, because if you've got one firewall, then that's a single point of failure. Um, then you've got to think about how you load balance between the two public IP addresses you've got there for two different providers. Then obviously then you've got to look at that load balancing then between two web servers. And then obviously then if it's on site, you've got to then look at 
clustering your MS your MS SQL. But if these are all VMs, you then got to think about. Hang on a minute. Um, you've got to think about the underlying technology. If you've got multiple hosts, it's sitting on VMware, KVM, SAN storage, shared storage. So obviously it can get quite expensive. And then you just need to write down a list of all the things which you think what you can say. And then you can say to business, right, what what do you want to protect against? It says the re- by the looks of it, the requirement is high availability and that's it. <laughs> You're not necessarily protecting against everything, although Yeah, but you need to you need to say that because what you can do is you can build a solution and then you can say do all that and be you got a single you got two far you got two internet connections, one firewall, and then the firewall goes down and then they go, well, why have why have we only got firewall single point of question? So if they so I think that he's got to go back and ask how what kind of resilience do they want kind of thing. Is this mega appointment or is it what what can you tolerate being down or whatever? So I took a similar tack. So I I was the first first person to reply to this out of us, and so my kind of initial point was I listed off like you guys have mentioned about, you know, multiple data centers, multiple routers, switches, firewalls, VM hosts, load balancers, intraday intra center links, fire separate ISPs, multiple ISPs on the front end, you know, multiple database servers, multiple web servers, you know, uh, that's on-prem. And the company that I work for, that's that's our bread and butter. That's the stuff that we do day in, day out. If you move to cloud, it becomes a lot more straightforward. You can provision multiple availability zones or multiple regions uh, to give you your high availability. You can consume cloud database servers like Jerry mentioned, which will automatically replicate the data between the, the availability zones as well. And if you're using fully cloud stuff, then you can also consume the platform as a service stuff rather than managing and hosting your your web servers and stuff uh, on the infrastructure. So you, you're taking away some part of your infrastructure work as well. That then gives you your availability to scale horizontally. And as Jerry mentioned as well, cloud load balancer. A couple of other things. So you guys have both sort of drawn, drawn out the fact that it seems to be predominantly around about HA. One thing, having done a few of Azure and AWS sort of training courses, neither of them offer five nines uh, which is 99.999% available um, unless you really nail how you engineer the solution. So you guys have said, you know, how much risk is the company pre- prepared to tolerate? My response was, are you basically just trying to ensure that somebody doesn't trip over your network cable? Because if that's all you're trying to prevent against, then, you know, it's not like it's not like most people are day traders where, you know, you're down to lightning second, you know, microseconds of, you know, transit being a problem. Realistically, mostly what you're looking for is your, your mean time to restore service and, and you know, at what how far back are you going to be on that? So is it just going to be that realistically all you need is a really good backup service? But the other question that I was asking, uh, and, and this was around, you know, why is that, why is that host currently on premise? Is it purely just because it's been there forever or is it because it needs to be very secure? So is it in like a locked rack in a, you know, three, three foot thick walled comms room, you know, in the middle of your building, you know, how secure does it actually need to be? And if it, if it just needs to be, you know, 
TLS and HTTPS, well, that's you can host that in the cloud without too much of a problem. But if it needs to be really secure, you know, you need to start looking at, you know, having some sort of key management system on-prem, perhaps at your head office or something like that, that then authenticates your cloud servers to actually even be able to boot in the first place. But that then gets exceptionally expensive. I think I remember looking at one product and it was like £500,000 just for the key management system. The other thing that I said might help was to look into how dynamic the content was. So if it's a relatively static amount of data that's being produced, then perhaps just having a web cache can to sort of reduce your processing time or even just storing your, your updated data on several machines. So if you do lose your, proce- your, your central processing, you know, your, your PHP bit, then your front end can keep running and keep serving the static content, perhaps directing to a, oops, we currently have a problem page when it doesn't work. And you could look at if you, if it's really kind of, you could use just your, uh, something like an Nginx web cache for the bulk of your work, and then perhaps use something like AWS Lambda or something like that for the content changes. But again, that means completely re-architecting your application, and it is down to cost at that point, like you mentioned. So yeah, so that's our viewpoint. If you've got a different viewpoint, dear audience, uh, please email or or join our Telegram chat group, because as I mentioned, this was where this question came from. It's interesting because your base, uh, I think the the uh, correspondent is basically asking how you go from a sort of proof of concept to a, you know, production ready application. Or perhaps a legacy application. Mm. Cool. I think that answered that one. So we got some feedback from one of our listeners. One of the things that all podcasts like to get is feedback. Um, it tells us it tells us how we're doing. That someone's actually listening to it as well. Yes, <laughs> it is nice to know people listen to it. One of our listeners uh, contacted us. Uh, to be fair, it was a little while ago, and I didn't make a note of it at the time, and and I should have filed it. So I'm very, very sorry about this, Paul. But so Paul emailed in to say that in a recent episode, you asked for feedback, which is what he's done. Fantastic. Uh, so I thought I'd drop a quick line to say, I enjoy listening to the show and look forward to it every other month, uh, which is a bit worrying that he's getting it every other month. <laughs> Never mind. <clears throat> uh, and he said 60 to 90 minutes about the right length. Fantastic news there as well. And he enjoys having a, a topic, uh, having a topic each time um, because it works quite well. Um, he then said that um, anything to do with Ansible or AWS would be of interest to you as I use Ansible for my servers. And I'd like to get into AWS as it's becoming something that the clients are asking about. Like Paul, a lot of our clients are asking about AWS. Uh, so I'm going on a bit of a journey of discovery with AWS. At the moment, I'm more au fait with Azure. Jerry, you're are you more Azure or more AWS? Definitely more AWS, but I'm actually finding that more um, that more Azure. Uh, you know, in terms of con- contracts, people are asking for that that kind of thing. I'd like to say that you, you learn Terraform and then learn how that works, and then all you're looking at then is what kind of how the different resources in terraform and if you like the different primitives in terraform match up to each cloud provider because uh, i think they're fairly similar so you know you have a notion of like a storage um uh, service and things that you can do with that service and an instance is like a unit of uh, of the cloud provider you know load balancer firewall that kind of thing so i think i think 
once you've done that, you you can probably hop between them quite easily. The main thing I've found that differs between AWS and Azure is that there's more complexity in the networking in AWS than there is in Azure. So AWS will not let you define routing particularly, whereas Azure will let you route traffic. It's all still brokered in more or less the same way. So there's no, there is ARP traffic there, but the ARP traffic is all responded to from a single node, which is basically the listener service on each VM host. Hmm. Once you kind of get your head around that part, AWS and Azure are relatively the same. I find that the the web interface for Azure is better, but you get more flexibility from AWS. But realistically, mostly what we're looking at is kind of understanding how to provision stuff in there. Because once the infrastructure's up, you know, uh, an Ubuntu box on Azure works the same as an Ubuntu box on AWS works the same as an Ubuntu box on VMware. So if you're used to that, you're used to that. What I would say to Paul actually is, again, uh, if you're getting into AWS or thinking of getting into AWS um, and you're of a kind of code coding kind of mindset, look at Terraform. It's still, you'll thank yourself. <laughs> you'll, thank, you'll thank me, maybe. One thing to remember as well is that uh, John was saying about routes in Azure. Uh, I think they're called UDRs, Universal Defined Routes. Um, it's really free me the first time I saw it. Uh, normally, it, when you define a route and any other networking, you define, you want to say, I want to get to this subnet, you basically put an IP address on the on the same subnet as what you're on. But in Azure, you don't. So it's really confusing. I probably just mucked that up completely. But that's what, once you've got your head around, that's how is your way is your, does it? So there's a couple of small corrections there. It's user-defined routes. And technically, your same subnet traffic all goes through the brokering service. So effectively, if you imagine, if you if you treat your traffic on Azure or AWS as though you, it's on the end of a DSL link uh, or a modem link. So you get a point-to-point IP address uh, for for that that subnet. So although you may be expressing it as being part of a subnet, you can only do layer three traffic, which means unicast only. Sorry, means um, uh, you. there's no ARPs, um, there's no... Uh, SSDP, there's no LLDP and stuff like that. But also you you can't do multicast. So you don't do an although you you actually do an ARP broadcast um on the broadcast address, say you know who, who who's got this address. What actually happens is the broker service that that the other end of that point to point link will actually reply for every address inside the network or it will not reply for anything you're not supposed to get to. So you're right. If, you, if you've got a UDR that specifies your same subnet to go to go via a different subnet, it'll work. If you haven't got a UDR in there and you've got a, a supernet, a 10 slash 8 supernet uh, that's subnetted down into slash 24s, 
Uh, so you're in 10, 0, 0, 100, and you're trying to reach 10, 2, 5, 5, 2, 5, 5, 100. That just roots, it just magically appears from source A to host B because it's all brokered through this brokerage service, which just knows how to route everything. And the way that I think of it, as I said, is is although you've got it as a slash 24 subnet or, you know, slash 16 or slash 8 subnet, what you are actually doing is just talking directly to the router and the router then just routes you onto wherever it is you need to go to and it just makes it work. And that's the way that that's for, for networking people. That's probably the easiest way of looking at it. So that was that bit of feedback. And again, if, uh, as I said, I'm going, I'm starting to do a lot more AWS work. So hopefully uh, I'll be talking more about AWS as we go along. And I hope that will, that will improve Paul's experience with our show. And I hope we, we already talk about Ansible enough to, to not bore everyone else too much. <laughs> we also got some other feedback from Yannick, uh, who I think we might all have met at the last dog camp, which was nice. And in that, he said, in episode 73, John talked about the difficulty he had with CertBot and some exotic architecture. Here at work, we also had to figure out a way around, a way to secure many websites hosted on various kinds of servers and running on a variety of operating systems. The best solution we came up with was to use Nginx as a reverse proxy. That proxy handles the TLS part and it's the only place our certificates are located. It exposes the well-known directory and redirects traffic to the proper servers. If we need to add or remove ciphers for security reasons, all of our web servers are, websites are protected at once. Um, and he then goes into how he uses uh, wildcards, wildcard certificates for the company's domain. And each time we need to use a new subdomain, we create it in a DNS and point it the reverse proxy. So yeah, that, that's a, a really good way of doing things. There is a there is more content there, uh, which I've cropped down. As as Al mentioned, we are we are running a little bit over the hour already. So yeah, I, I've I've used a similar setup at on my home hosting stuff. So I, I front everything on uh, an engine Xbox and I do all my let's encrypt on there. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a good pattern. The only thing that I will say is if you are terminating your TLS at your engine Xbox at the front, and you then are doing plain HTTP traffic from that front node to your back nodes, uh, that gives your, if you had a, an attacker that you were worried about, that gives them access to actually be able to inspect your traffic if they can somehow get in behind the Nginx box. What you might be better off doing, if you're not already doing, is doing HTTPS from your Nginx box to your web servers. And actually looking through the email, he does mention that the traffic is forged over HTTP so we can reduce the load on the web servers. Google did a, um, a study a few years back about how much the web traffic gets increased by going to TLS. And on the whole, it was found to be relatively neg neg negligible, particularly if you've got um, any sort of m recent processor that's got onboard hashing and encryption functions on the CPUs that can massively decrease your workload on there anyway. But yeah, I understand that. So you could have it so that you've got internal certificates, uh, an internal CA, because you could kind of do it so you haven't got to worry about buying certificates. Right? You could run your, and, and, and then you could obviously you get your, your front end and your back end to trust that certificate. And it doesn't really matter that no one externally 
There is, there is, however, a counterpoint to that as well, which is if you are using any sort of uh, intrusion protection system um, or web application framework, uh, not framework, web application firewall, web, yeah, web application firewall, that needs to be able to actually see the content of the traffic that it's, it's receiving, uh, which uh, Yannick doesn't go into on that. But if you, if you do have it traversing something like that, typically they either need to be in plain text, so HTTP packets at that point, um, or you need to provide that inspecting device with a certificate or you need to man in the middle on that box. So then you're going in and out, in and out, and then in and out again on the other side of it. So potentially you're encrypting and decrypting three times, which again, might not be good, particularly if you're like a day trader or something like that. So there's a few different viewpoints there. Uh, it mentions moving architecture from, sorry, from one architecture to another without having to worry about certificates or encryption. I I would accept that is a a useful thing to have, but I would say that if you are using that, no, I won't go down that route. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the, the email is quite a long one, to be fair, and it's it's a really good email and it's very well researched. Um, unfortunately, we've had to crop it quite short, so I'm sorry about that, Yannick. Maybe we can talk about it next time. Maybe we can. That's a good idea. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Yannick will have some feedback for our feedback. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost getting to inception, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, so I think we're about at the end. So, yeah, thanks, Dave, again, for doing your audio production. Um, much appreciated, as normal. You rock, Dave. Thanks. <laughs> you really do. And and he's also, he, he surprised us a little bit last time, because um, whereas, uh, whereas in the past, you know, we get our audio to him, and he's sort of taken not a long time, because it's not a long time, Goodness, goodness gracious, if I was trying, trying to do this, it would be dreadful. Um, but, you know, uh-huh. it would take sort of, you know, a few a few days, maybe maybe a week or so. Um, and this time he turned it around in almost, sort of, I think it was 48 hours. And it was, okay, that was, that was unexpected. And we sort of suddenly had, I think, I think one of our, uh, one of our Telegram people mentioned that we, uh, we had two shows in one month and they were a bit shocked about <laughs> that. So, so, but yeah, so Dave is, Dave has, uh, has, has, improved what was already an a game to an a plus game so dave's awesome uh, and and i can't i can't recommend his his other endeavors any higher so uh, have a look for the love bug on twitter um or mastodon um or or you know wherever you uh, wherever you wherever you find good good tech technical people that's that's pretty much where dave is um talk, talking of dave he's also a patreon uh patreon backer for the show uh, so we've got a list of Patreons we need to mention um, because they contribute uh, one dollar or more. Or yeah, it's one dollar or more, I think. So, uh, and we've got a new one. Uh, so that's uh, so we'd like to thank this uh, episode: Andamo, Yannick, Dave, and Mike. Ooh. Thank you very much, guys. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Have we got so we got four now. Woo-hoo. Yeah. So. In our previous shows, we've been mentioning Foss Talk Live. As we record this right now, um, Foss Talk Live, I think, is probably about over. Um, but I would like to um, mention that Og Camp uh, is going to be on Saturday, the October, October the 19th, and Sunday, October the 20th, 
2019 in Manchester. Hopefully by the time you hear this podcast, the tickets will be out and you should be getting yours to come and meet many, many fine individuals, including, I hope, the three of us. Get them while they're hot. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll be there definitely for the whole four days. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going to be there on the Friday or the Monday because uh, Manchester's relatively close to where I live. But uh, I should be there on at least the Saturday with, with my boy and hopefully on the Sunday by myself. So we're looking forward to that. Nice. Cool. Okay, and thank you everyone for listening, I'm guessing, and we'll hopefully speak to everyone soon. Bye for now. Until the next time. Bye. Bye.